listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I hope you are doing well. If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter 3, we're going to continue our series this morning um, through this book, 1 Peter, that we're calling Exiles. We're going to cover this morning verses 13 to 22. Um, As you're turning there, let me tell you the reason why we're calling it this is because chapter 1 verse 1, this is who Peter says he's writing to. Peter introduces himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect what? Exiles. So Peter says, I'm the apostle. I'm writing this letter too. And he calls them exiles. And I know we've said this before in this series, but uh, I think it's worth mentioning again that as Peter writes this letter to describe what it looks like to follow Jesus, he describes the Christian life as one of exile. And this word exile, it means a stranger or a foreigner, right? It describes a person that is distinctly different from the world or the culture around them. And what I want us to consider together today, this morning, is that the difference of an exile to the world around them isn't subtle. It's not a subtle difference. It's not like those puzzles in the Highlights magazines. Anybody get those Highlights magazines you did when you were a kid? Nobody? Somebody. All right, come on. Um, I used to love those. My kids get them now. I don't know how. They just always show up, you know? Um, and, and I was working through one of those with my kids the other day. And in those magazines, there's those can you spot the difference puzzles, right? So I was with my middle son, Brooks, and, and there was this two, can you spot the difference thing? I said, buddy, what's the difference about these two pictures? It was a bear. What's different about these two pictures? He says, nothing. It looked the same, right? But after closer look, you see that one of them is missing a button on his shirt or one of them has an extra stripe on the scarf, right? And what Peter is saying, what he has in mind when he uses the word exiles is his, this is a completely different way of living. It's not subtle, nuanced differences from, from the world. It's a completely different way of living. It's like being picked up, being dropped in a completely foreign country where you speak a completely different language, you don't understand the culture and everything around you seems strange, That's what the word exile means, and that's what he calls these Christians. That's how he describes the life of following Jesus, right? Um, And he writes this letter to show them this picture and ultimately to encourage them that living the exiled life is difficult. And so he's gonna say, here is how I would want to encourage you. And what I wanna do before we jump into this chapter three, 13 to 22, is just to ask us a question. In your experience, is the word exile an accurate description of the Christian life? So if you would consider yourself a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, is exile an accurate description of your life? Um, And really what we're saying is, are you different? Not different because you're better, but different because your belief in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you. Again, not highlights, can you spot the different subtleties, but are you in exile? What about if you consider the people you know? who would consider themselves Christians. You think about their life. Are they exiles? Is that an accurate description of their life? Are they different? Maybe the best question of all would be to say this. What about our church? What about CBC? When you think about who we are as believers in and followers of Jesus, people who put our yes down with one another, if you're a member of this church and we've said, hey, I'm gonna follow Jesus and I wanna help you and I want you to help me to do that, are we any different? Are we exiles? 
And I don't ask these questions to make you feel bad about yourself or to heap shame on you, to leave you with a mentality uh, where you would leave this morning saying, man, I need to do better. I need to try harder. I'm not doing that because that is an anti-gospel way of thinking. Jesus doesn't invite us into a life of do better and try harder. He invites us into a life of deep abiding relationship with the one true God of the universe. And the Bible teaches that as we draw near to him through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is he who transforms us from the inside out. So I'm not asking you this to make you feel like a failure. I'm asking us this question because I think that many of us have grown content with pursuing a version of Christianity that looks a lot more like the American dream than anything we would see in the Bible. And when it comes down to it, what we believe is that if we do our part and we uphold our end of the bargain, then God will uphold his. That if we show up at church every now and again, if we give some money, if if we just do our best to be nice people, read our Bibles, try to be good, we believe if we uphold our end of the bargain, God will uphold his his and our life will work the way that we think it should. Our lives will be a line that goes up and to the right. You know what I mean? One nice paying job after the other, one better house after the other, one better vacation, one better car after the other, and year after year after year, as long as that's what happens, as long as we get what we want, man, it is a delight to serve God, is it not? Praise his name, man. We will shop at Hobby Lobby because we are too blessed to be stressed. As long as life works the way we want it to, praise his name, but as soon as things don't go according to plan, how quick are we to turn to God and to blame him for not giving us things that he never promised to give us? Peter says in chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll talk about more of that in a minute, but I think maybe the reason why our lives or the lives of the Christians we know don't look more like exiles is because, why we don't look different than the world around us is because we're chasing all the same things that they are, but we're just trying to use God to get it. Our lives don't look different because we want all the same things that they want. We're just trying to use God in order to get those things. And Peter says again, Jesus Christ is Lord. This means that we belong to him. We belong to his kingdom, not the other way around. But it's not just us that he's king over. The Bible says that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is the unrivaled, unimpeachable, glorious Lord of heaven and earth, that he is the one who was and is and is to come, that he forgives sins and that he loves sinners, that he forever defeated death and hell through a perfect life in an empty tomb. And the Bible says that right now, he is at the right hand of God the Father where he is ruling and reigning of every square inch of creation in complete and sovereign control, Jesus is Lord. And the good news of Christianity is not that we get to use him to get what we want. The good news of Christianity is that we have now been given access to draw near to the king himself. To live our lives, not just for God, but with him. But here's the thing, to belong to the kingdom is to surrender your life entirely to the king. That Jesus would be Lord of your life. That's what it means to be an exile. Not part of your life, but Lord of all of it. Here's an example, maybe this will help. When you, when you have people come over to your house or your apartment or wherever it is that you live, you give different people different levels of access to your house based on who they are to you, right? So the delivery guy, FedEx, Amazon, they show up at your house, where are they welcome? 
the porch, that's it, no further. Unless you're super weird and, and praise God, you wanna give them something to drink, but that's it, that's where they stop if, they, if the door even opens, right? You just wait, and wait till they leave and then get the package. You're welcome on the porch because I don't know you, because we're not friends, right? But if a friend comes over, they're welcome in the house. Now, you're gonna pick up first, you're gonna clean up first because for some reason we like to pretend we don't live in the house that we invite people over to. It's always this clean, you know what I'm saying? So you pick up before they come, but they come, um, and they're welcome in. They're welcome in the living room. They're welcome in the kitchen. They're probably uh, not gonna go to your bedroom. That would be weird. If they need to use the bathroom, they're probably gonna use the guest bathroom if you have one. They're not going back up in the master, right? Because that's your space, okay? Um, but, but maybe you have a friend that's not just that kind of friend. It's, it's friendship goals. It's the people that you don't pick up for before they come over. And those people have an even greater access to your life, even greater access to your home. And even then, though, there's still some places you don't expect them to go, right? Because how weird would it be if yesterday you're watching the game, Georgia's winning, go dogs, and <laughs> the little whistle, uh, Georgia's winning and you're watching the game and then you're just having a great time and then someone says, hey, where's Jason, all right? And if your name's Jason, I just came out of nowhere, I'm not trying to be offensive. Someone says, hey, where's Jason? You go, I don't know, I'm gonna go look for him. And you walk around, you can't find him, but then you see that the, the attic door's open. And you look up and Jason's just flipping through your old stuff. You're like, buddy, what are you doing? You don't belong here, that is my stuff, okay? Uh, the point is that different people have different access to our space, but there comes a time when we give unrestricted access to anyone who comes in, and that's when you're trying to sell your house. All right, anyone done this recently? It's a miserable process, especially if you have kids or pets, right? Because it's the, it's the ultimate of trying to make your house look a way that it never looks. This is the best it's ever looked because now... You're gonna sell it, right? And when you are offering your home to a potential new owner, you invite them to go into every room. You give them access to open every door. And if they put an offer in, it goes even further. Now they get to hire an expert. And he gets to come to your house or she, right? And they get to go look in every nook and cranny. Their job is to find any potential problem with your house. They even get to go to the attic, right? And when there is the prospect of what is currently yours now belonging to someone else, you give away complete access to the potential new owner. And the reason why I tell you that is because one of the misconceptions around Christianity, especially in the South, especially in a place like Savannah, is that to be a Christian is simply to welcome Jesus as a guest or a friend into your house. The Bible in particular, the letter of 1 Peter is gonna shatter that misconception. That Christianity is not Jesus becomes a friend who has access to some parts or even most of your house. Christianity is that your house is now under new ownership. And he has access to every bit of it. And the reality is that's the only role that Jesus is willing to play. He doesn't wanna be a guest, he wants to be the head of the home. And the invitation that from Jesus is to surrender to the king, is to position ourselves as, position him as Lord of our lives, which means that all of our lives are now his. And the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus comes into our life, he doesn't demand an inspection because he already knows what's there. He already knows what's there. He knows about all the dark closets in your life. He knows about all the things that you hope no one will find. And again, the good news is what flows from Jesus toward all of that stuff that we hope no one will find out about us is unconditional love. There is not a part of your life, of your past or your present that Jesus hasn't purchased with his blood and he isn't eager to cover with his grace and his mercy. But he also is not content to live with you in a house where there are rooms that you don't want him to go in. 
There isn't a part of your life that he doesn't care about or desire to occupy. He lays claim over it all. All of our mixed motivations, all of our duplicitousness, all of our sorrow and our grief, the painful things that, the painful places that we don't want anyone to go. Jesus lays claim over it all. And this is why Peter says the life of following Jesus is one of exile. Because the exiled life should look different because Jesus has come in. Because as he comes in, then we begin to be transformed from the inside out. And so Peter, as he's writing this letter, he says we should look different and he describes how the life looks different. At first he says you should look different in your neighborhoods as citizens and different in your cities as citizens. And then he says you should look different in your workplaces, whether you're the employee or the employer, you should look different in your marriage and you should look different in your relationships. And today, He's gonna say to us that as exiles, we should live different in our pain. That's what we're gonna see in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. We should look different in our pain. There should be a noticeable difference how we respond when life hurts. And I want you to see this, starting in verse 13. He says, now who is there to harm you, even if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now, this is a confusing question that Peter asks here in verse 13. It's not confusing by itself because it sounds like what Peter just said is if we do what is right, if we're zealous for what is good, that means eager for what is good, then no one will hurt us. It's like what we said before. It sounds like if we uphold our end of the bargain, then God will uphold his. But it does get confusing when you put it into the context of what Peter says a couple verses up. In verse nine, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Right? So he says, people are gonna treat you in a way that's evil. And then he says this word, or they will revile you, which means to insult you or slander you. So essentially what Peter's saying is people are gonna hurt you with their actions. They're gonna hurt you with their words. And then four verses later, he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It seems like the Bible is contradicting himself here. But what Peter's doing is he's giving them a biblical understanding of the pain that they are experiencing in their lives. And he does it with this question. He says, who is there to harm you? And his point is not, no one can or will ever hurt you, right? The Bible does not say that your life will always go the way that you want it to. There is no promise in the scripture that following Jesus means up and to the right. And his original audience knew this was true. This was a group of people who were already suffering for their faith in Jesus. They had lost jobs and lost friends and been ostracized by family members, right? So clearly, Peter is not saying if you do what's right, if you do good, then nothing painful will ever happen in your life. But if it's not that, then what is it? And if we wanna understand verse 13, we need to look at verse 12. Because right before this, in verse 12, Peter quotes Psalm 34, and he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter says to this group of people who are hurting, and they're crying out to God, and they're confused, and they're wondering, why is life not working out the way that I thought it would? He says to this group of people, God sees you. He sees your pain and he knows how you're hurting. And then he says, when you cry to him, God hears it. But not only that, God is opposed to the people who are causing you to experience the pain that you're walking through, right? And on the heels of that, since that is true, since God sees and since God knows and since God hears and since he opposes those who do evil to you now, who is there to harm you? 
And again, the point is not that we should never, or we should expect to never experience pain in our lives or that no one will ever hurt us. The point is that if this is true about God, if God sees and God knows and he cares about my pain, if he hears my cries, if that is true, then who can ultimately hurt us? This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can what? Who can be against us? This is the point that Peter's making. And, and what's interesting though is my guess is when Peter's audience heard verse 13, when they heard something like, if God is for us, who could be against us? Their, res- their first response was a lot of people. A lot of people can hurt me. A lot of people have. A lot of people are against me, right? But what Peter's saying is, if God is for us, if the one with all power and all authority over every square inch of the, of the universe, if he sees my pain, if he hears my cries and more than that, if he actually cares about it, then who could be against me? Now, who is there to harm me? And again, Peter's trying to give these exiles a biblical understanding for what they're walking through. He's trying to show them how to live different in the midst of their pain. And he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And again, that's confusing, right? The, the, in our minds, the words suffering and blessing don't go together. We live in a culture, a world that, that pursues comfort at almost every cost and we avoid pain at almost every cost. This is why you get so angry when life doesn't go the way you want because if you're holding up your end of the bargain, you think so should God. This is also why when you're not holding up your end of the bargain, that thought pops into your mind. You think if, if I do what's right, then God will give me what I want and so if God's not giving me what I want, then I must not be doing what's right. And that's why we think when we, when we mess up or when life doesn't go the way we want, the thought pops into our mind that says, God's punishing me for my sin. He's punishing me for my sin. So your car breaks down or you lose your job or someone you love gets sick and you think this is happening because of what I've been doing and, I, and I've been meaning to stop it. And if I would just been more obedient to God, this wouldn't be happening. And church, I need you to hear this. That's not what the Bible teaches. And now I'm not saying there are not consequences for your sin because there absolutely are and there will be. I'm not even saying that God isn't willing to pry your finger, pry your hand open, even if it's painful, to get you to let go of some sin that you're clinging to. He will, because the Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves in Hebrews 12. But I am saying that if you are a Christian, then the pain that you are experiencing in your life is not God punishing you for your sin. And I can say that with all the confidence in the world, because the Bible teaches that on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath toward your sin in full. In full. Because John says the last three words that Jesus ushers or utters rather before he dies and gives his spirit on the cross is it is finished. Which means the cup is empty and there isn't even a drop left for you. The pain in your life is not God punishing you for your sin because Jesus has paid that bill in full. Peter says in verse 14, even if we suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And so the pain he's talking about is not pain as a result of us doing something wrong. In fact, specifically what he's talking about is pain as a result of us doing what is right. Even if you suffer for righteousness sake, right? And Peter says, even that is a blessing from God. And again, these two words don't go together in our minds. How could pain and blessing even be in the same sentence? It doesn't make any sense. And you know what Peter has to have in his mind as he writes this is, something he heard Jesus say. 
the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he ascends a hill north of the Sea of Galilee and he preaches a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter five, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my count, account. And then Jesus says this, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. This is the biblical perspective of suffering and pain that Peter wants his readers to have. He's saying, even though it hurts now, who can ultimately harm you? Because he says, your reward is great in heaven. And I need to clarify, this is not him trying to minimize the pain that you are walking through right now. There are things that happen in this life that are so devastatingly painful that I have no idea how people move on. We've even seen that in our community in the last week. Peter, when he says, or Jesus, when he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Peter, when he says, no one can harm you, they're not trying to minimize how painful things can be in this life here and now. What he's doing is pointing to the greatness of the day that's coming. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it's not that the pain isn't heavy. It's that when you compare it to the joy of that day, there's not one. There is no comparison. And I believe, based on what the Bible teaches, that whenever that day does come, whenever we do stand face to face with Jesus, it won't matter what suffering we had to endure to get to that day. It won't matter what suffering we had to endure to stand there with him. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And John has a vision about that day. I wanna read it for you. John, in Revelation 21, it'll be on the screen, said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is why Peter says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good than it is, if it should be God's will, than it is for doing evil. He says, this is the better way. He's saying that the exile should live different in their pain, not seeking comfort or avoiding it at all costs, but we entrust our life to a God who sees us, a God who knows us, a God who actually cares about our pain, who lives in opposition to those who would do evil to us. We need to see that, we, that, that even that God can be trusted in our pain. He can be trusted in our pain because he promises there's a day coming where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that's not just a, hey, it's not gonna matter anymore, quit crying. That's I see you. That's I know. That's I care. Peter says this is the better way. And the question we have to answer is how could what causes us pain ever be the better way? I mean, honestly. Like, just imagine you're not listening to me in this room, but we're just talking around a dinner table. How could what is painful ever be the better way? And the answer is, it's, it's when, if God sees and God knows and he cares and still he allows it to happen. That's how we know it's the better way. Here's an example. On uh, this past Monday, we were, we were with our middle son, Brooks, up in Atlanta and he was having a scan done and I guess because they didn't figure he would sit still for an hour for the MRI, they decided they were gonna sedate him, all right? In order to do so, they had to give him an IV. 
And so for them to give him the IV, I had to sit him in my lap and then squeeze him against my chest as these two ladies dug around in his arm with a, with a needle. And if you don't like needles, I'm sorry. It was traumatic for me and now you're welcome. Um, so I'm squeezing him against my chest, trying to hold him still, trying to keep his head to one side, right? So he can't see what, what's happening and he's doing everything he can in his little three-year-old body to prevent what's happening from happening, doing everything he can to push against me. And again, I'm trying to comfort him and get him to look at me and to tell him it's gonna be okay and he's screaming, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. Daddy, make him stop. And I guarantee you, if Brooks could have had his way, in that moment, he would have made him stop. And to be honest, if I could have had my way, I would have made him stop too. But I didn't. Why? Because it was for his good. Because it was for his good. And when Peter says in verse 17, this is the better way, He's saying, because God knows, he sees, he cares. And if he's allowing it to happen, it's just for your good. Still, this is the better way. He says, because there's coming a day where this pain will be worth it. There's coming a day where this pain will be worth it, a day where we will rejoice and with glad hearts, we will say now, who is there to harm me? And Peter wants us to know that since this is true, since this is who our God is, this is not just a future reality. This is not just good news one day. This is good news today. This is a present reality because not only is there a day coming where we will be with Jesus and experience the greatness of our heavenly reward, the Bible says that we have Jesus with us now. Only he's not just with us in our pain, he's actually suffered the ultimate pain in our place. Look at verse 18. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so this is something that Peter does several times in this letter to help us make sense of our pain and our suffering. He points us to Jesus, and he's gonna say it this way. He's gonna say, Christ also suffered. Five or six times in this letter, he wants to point us to Jesus. Here's one, chapter two, verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called, talking about pain and suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to look not at our pain, but to look at Jesus, like my son, like Brooks in my lap while he's fighting to turn his head. He just wants to see, what is this that's hurting me? And I was trying to get him to look at me, to let him know that I'm with him, to remind him that he's not alone. But only the difference is, Jesus isn't just with us in our pain, he suffers the ultimate pain in our place. He just said the righteous one gave his life for undeserving sinners so that we could be brought back into right relationship with God. That Jesus takes our place and he offers us his. We have a suffering savior. A savior who's willing to suffer, who doesn't stand back and make us do the dirty work, but one who gets in there. His name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Only He not only suffers for us, but he's actually with us in our suffering. And Peter is saying, when life is painful, you look to him. I wanna read you this, this quote from John Piper. He writes in an article about suffering. He says, What kind of savior do we need when our hearts are shredded by brutal loss? We need a suffering savior. We need a savior who's tasted the cup of horror that we are being forced to drink. And that is how he came. He knew what this world needed. Not a comedian, not a sports hero, not a movie star, not a political genius, not a a doctor, not even a pastor. 
The world needed what no mere man could be. The world needed a suffering sovereign. Mere suffering would not do, mere sovereignty would not do. The one is not strong enough to save, the other is not weak enough to sympathize. And so he came as he was, the compassionate king, the crushed conqueror, the lamb-like lion, the suffering sovereign. No one else can feel what he felt. No one else can love like he loved. No one else can heal like he can heal. And no one else can save like he can save. Peter says, when life hurts, you look to him. The one who's not just with you in your pain, but who's suffered in your place. And after verse 18, things start to get a little bit weird, all right? This is what they call a hard turn, if you're ready for that. Um, And so I wanna read it for us and you'll see what I mean, but just as a teaser for that, Martin Luther, uh, he says this about our text. If you don't know Martin Luther, he's a German pastor, priest, theology professor, known for his role in the Protestant Reformation. He says this, this is a strange text, certainly more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the Apostle Peter meant. So that's the challenge ahead of us for the rest of our time. It's gonna be an uphill climb. So Luther isn't the only one who doesn't know, right? None of us really know what Peter means here. And there's two primary problems. I wanna read it for us. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And he says this, in which, alive in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water and baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A lot of problems for us in this text, two primarily ones that I want you to see. Uh, They raise several questions for us, okay? The first one, as in verse 19, when it says that Jesus went in the spirit somehow, he proclaimed the truth of the gospel from verse 18 to some spirits who were in prison and they didn't obey in the days of Noah. A lot of questions about that. The second one is verse 21 where he says that baptism saves you, all right? Those, if you're reading your Bible, those things come up, red flag moments, okay? What does this mean? The second one is easier to tackle than the first one. I'm gonna do that one first. So when Peter says that baptism saves you, He doesn't mean that the act of baptism, actually being dunked into water is what saves you. What he's saying is is rather what baptism signifies is what saves you. And I'm gonna show you where that, that's not just what I think, that's what the Bible says. And so here's, here's how I know that. He gives a couple of qualifiers. He says that baptism now saves you. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, right? So it's not the removal of dirt from the body, which means it's not the removal of sin from your soul. The water going over your body is not making you clean or of sin or dirt. The focus is not how the water is effective, but what the baptism through the water signifies. And he says, this is an appeal to God, an appeal to God, right? Which means it's an act of faith for a good conscience, he says. And then what's our appeal? He says, it's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So the instrument of salvation is not the water of baptism, but it's a response of faith. We believe and trust, I'm in this water because I believe that Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. That's what he means in that passage. That's the easier one, all right? Um, The more challenging thing is what Peter says, that that baptism that doesn't save you, but faith in Jesus does, what it corresponds to. So he says, Jesus proclaims to the spirits in prison, 
in the days of Noah, and again, we know Noah's guy built an ark and then eight people went with him in the ark and they passed through the water and he says that baptism corresponds to this. And again, we don't really know what he means here. Are the spirits that Jesus preaches to, are they actual spirits? Are they fallen angels who are in prison? Are they human spirits who have, because of their disobedience, been thrown into prison and then Jesus goes and preaches to them? We don't know. The bigger question is when and how did Jesus preach to them, right? Was it before the incarnation somehow? Before Jesus became a baby, before he was Emmanuel, who dwelt among us and came in flesh? Or was it, a lot of people think it's between his death and resurrection that after the, the, the exalted Jesus who died, before he rose again, he went and proclaimed the good news of the gospel to some spirits who were in prison. Again, we don't know. I will give you my best guess. I'm not gonna leave you hanging. I think the key to understanding this passage is when he says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. I think that's the, the time period that kind of identifies the rest of what's happening, the phrases that come before it, right? So he says, when God's uh, patience waited in the days of Noah, and then he says, in which he went, Jesus, to proclaim to the spirits in prison, again, defined by the time when God's patience waited in the days of Noah and because they didn't obey. Again, both happened in that time period. So what I think, and I'm saying I think for a reason, because I don't know, what I think is happening here is Peter is saying that Jesus Christ was preaching through Noah in those days, in those 120 years when Noah was building the ark and the ark was there and everyone was mocking him and calling him a fool and all that kind of stuff. That was the actual Jesus preaching through a man named Noah to the people around him who didn't obey and he was preaching then, not sometime between the death and the resurrection again. I think that's what he's saying. Um, but we're not exactly sure. And I kept saying I think because I don't want to spend any time on what I think. I want us to focus on what we know in the passage. And what we know is that regardless of, of what's happening here in that little point, Peter is pointing his original audience to Jesus. In the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, he wants to point them to the hope that is available to them in Jesus. And he's already said the righteous for the unrighteous, but he wants to point them to something bigger than just Jesus died for you. And we see this in verse 22. He says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so Peter's point is that not just did Jesus suffer in our place on the cross, but he's risen He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father, which means for us, the grave couldn't hold him. It's good news for us because he didn't just die for you. He rose again, overcoming sin and death. The grave couldn't hold him. Jesus is alive, and right now he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the day where he will return, wipe away every tear from our eyes, where pain will be no more, and he will make all things new. This is what Peter is trying to point these exiles too. And again, that is why Peter can say, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And this is why he says that exiles should live different in our pain because Jesus is with us. And real quick, I don't have a ton of time for this, but I wanna just say, what's the difference? How should exiles live different in our pain? Let me show you in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed and then here's the imperative, right? Here's the command of the text. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The difference for exiles when we experience pain in our life is that we don't live in fear. And he says, don't be afraid of them. And he says, don't be troubled, which means he's saying, don't be afraid of the people who can harm you and don't be afraid of any of the things that they could do to you. 
Exiles live different in our pain. We live not afraid of all the bad things that might happen to us or all the bad people who might do them to us. Um, And honestly, that's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. Because we said before, I mean, there there are things so tragic, so deeply painful in life. Like how could you possibly not live in fear? Peter says, when you live this way, people take notice. People will take notice. Again, how is this possible? Look at verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so this is not a particularly helpful translation of that first part of verse 15, because the in your hearts, honor as holy is really him saying, consider Christ Lord. So in your hearts, put Christ in the ultimate place there. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says it's possible to live not in fear of all the bad things that might happen, all the bad people who might do it to us. He says, because in our hearts, Christ is Lord. And again, if Christ is Lord, then he's ultimate in your hearts, and if you do that, your life looks different. One of those differences, he says, is we're not afraid of what the world around us is afraid of. We aren't motivated by the same fears that they are motivated by. And Peter says, when you live this way, people take notice. That's what he means when he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Real quick, this word, make a defense, it's a Greek word where we get our English word apologetics. And if you don't know what apologetics are, it's basically a vein of theological study that's devoted to defending the Christian faith kind of through systematic argumentation. And apologetics is valuable and it has its place, and a lot of fruit has come from it. It's just not what Peter's talking about here in this passage. He's not talking about this theological department of study, right? He's talking to ordinary Christians, like you and me, and he says, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. He doesn't say, be prepared to make a defense for God. Be prepared to make a defense for the existence of God. He says, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you, which means you don't need to know original languages, You don't need to have all the answers to all the questions you're gonna come at you about the dinosaurs, about the millennial reign of Christ. He's saying, can you articulate a reason for your hope? And here's what that means. That when the world around you, or the word around your office is, there's downsizing. And you you hear that your job is kinda on the line you're not spiraling like everyone else. And when you live that way, people are gonna ask and they're gonna say, hey man, why are you not freaking out? I think you should be more worried about this. And when Christ is Lord in your heart and and money isn't Lord of your heart or what money can bring, the comfort that it can bring, when Christ is Lord of your heart, then you can respond to that situation like this. Man, I love this job and I would really hate to lose it, but I do know that God sees me and he knows. And even if I do lose this job, I'll be okay because God can be trusted even in my pain. That's what he means. Are you prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you? And he says, do it with gentleness and respect. So it's not everyone else is freaking out and you turn to him and you say, listen, you wouldn't be freaking out like me if you trusted Jesus and quit being a bunch of pagans. That's not what he's saying. He's saying with gentleness and respect, we genuinely respond to painful moments in our life with, man, I wish this didn't happen. And if I had it my way, it wouldn't. But I know that God sees me. This is a defense for the hope that we have. And then just really briefly, I just wanna say, what's our hope? What is our hope? I think it's verse 12, 18, and 22. 
Verse 12, Peter says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. This means that God sees you, he hears you, and even when life hurts, he hasn't abandoned you. Verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This means that you have been reconciled by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and you now belong to him. And not only that, not only is he with you in your pain, he suffered the ultimate pain in your place. Verse 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, not only did he die in your place, but the grave couldn't hold him. He's not there anymore. He is now at the right hand of God waiting for the day where he will return and make all things new. The day where he will wipe away every tear from your eye. This word exiles, it means we live different because Christ is our hope, because he is the Lord of our hearts. And Peter says, and when life hurts, you look to him. You look to him. So that's what we're gonna do today um, by celebrating communion together. So if you got one of these, will you go ahead and grab it? In the first service, it got really loud right now with everyone fidgeting and grabbing this thing. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Grab it. Get it to a place where you can try not to make a bunch of noise with it. It'd be great. If you don't have one, um, you don't have to open it right now, it's okay. (laughs) If you don't have one, there'll be some people around who can get you one, you can raise your hand. But really, what this is, the night before Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that night before he, the righteous suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, he was in a room with his closest friends and he said, I want you to do this as often as you gather in remembrance of me, because as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what this is for us, when we take this meal together as the people of God, it's a reminder to us that the invitation for Jesus, the life he's inviting us into is not do better and try harder. It's not my broken body and my shed blood is what earns my right standing with God or it's what makes me important or makes me valuable. It's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. I have been brought to God, reconciled to him as a son or a daughter, as a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that meal together. It's a reminder to us that when life hurts, we can look to him and he sees Right now, for you, in this moment, man, if you are walking through one of those seasons where you go, man, life, for whatever reason, is just kicking me in the teeth. When life hurts, communion is a reminder. God sees you. He knows. He's with you. And he suffered the ultimate price on your behalf. Christ's body broken for you. The Bible says, likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And this covenant means the terms of the relationship. So the terms of, of our relationship with God now are in his blood. Not what you do or what you haven't done, but in what, who he is and what he's accomplished for us. So we celebrate this together, church, remembering Christ's blood shed for us. If you would stand with me, let me pray for us and we are singing and respond to the good news of the gospel this morning. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning, for the truth of the Bible that when life hurts, it doesn't mean that you have left us or forsaken us. In fact, we have the promise that you never have and you never will. 
get to look to you, the righteous for the unrighteous, the, your body was broken for us, that we would make sense of the pain that we experience. Help us, God, to turn our attention to you. And if for some reason, God, we're in one of those seasons where life isn't that painful, would you allow us to put a flag in the ground in this moment to remember God's kindness, his faithfulness to us because we are gonna need that. We're gonna need that to celebrate that moment to fuel us in, in the future. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to sing and respond what you and you alone deserve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.